All right, good morning. I bring you greetings from Chicago and our denominational offices. Um, and it's just such a pleasure to be with you. It's been great to do a whole weekend um, and really get to know you. I feel like you're not strangers that I'm preaching to. Um, so that always makes it nicer. Um, but as we talk today, uh, we are going to really press into um, some conversations that I don't think we have enough as the church. Um, you know, we just sang the song about how um, you are good all the time, all the time you are good. And, you know, I think sometimes it's really easy to gather on Sunday mornings and make those proclamations when life is good. But what does it mean to believe that God truly is good in the midst of a situation like Moses' mom finds herself in? where there's literally a law in the land that says that her baby must be put to death. How do you believe that God is good in the midst of circumstances like that? Um, and I think when we, we read this passage, um, I've, been, I've been on this journey for the last, uh, I'd say probably year and a half, where I've been really, I have to set my timer because I'll talk too long. And I know all this, the Hawks fans are anxious to prepare for <laughs> the, the day's gathering. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when we, when we, I think, you know, this is one of those stories. I've been, I've been on this journey where God has been convicting me about all of these biblical passages that have profound truth in them, but the ways in which we've reduced certain passages down to just children's stories and Sunday school. And we actually never go back and examine what they have to say to us as adults within our Christian formation and what does it mean for us to faithfully bear witness to the kingdom of God in the midst of a world that has other interests. And this is one of those stories where everybody heard this story in children's ministry. But how many of us have really gone back as adults and examined what this story means for us in regards to how do we faithfully bear witness to the kingdom of God in the midst of a divided world? Um, and so we're going to spend our time kind of unpacking this a little bit more. And I do have to have a confessional moment. Um, one of the reasons why I really like this story um, is because it flies in the face of everything I learned in children's ministry, uh, where it talked about how you always obey your parents. You, you never lie, and you never break the law. Well, in this story, all three of those things are not true. <laughs> and they're all things that God commissions people to do and honors them once they do it. So it's just, you know, there's a little rebel in me I just have to be confessional about. Um, but when we press into this story, I think it's important for us to really um, start with a different passage to frame our orientation towards what's going on in this passage. So John 13, uh, 34 through 35, it says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another, and by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And I think it's really interesting that after this commission, the last part of the sentence says, if you love one another. It doesn't say when you love one another. It says if, because we have free will, and God knows that we are, it is an uphill battle to choose to love one another in a society that teaches us that we are not, that we don't belong to one another, that there are actually are certain people we really belong to and other people that just kind of exist. Um, and so this big if 
is really speaking to the reality and the power of sin in our world. And sin teaches us that certain people are not truly people that we belong to. Certain people are less made in the image of God, if you will. Certain people are historically three-fifths of a human being. Certain people are native savages in need of civilization. Certain people, incarcerated people, are people that we should have no care and concern for. The if is important, and I think sometimes we read this passage as if it is just this affirmation of what Christian love is, but it's also contingent upon the if. Our ability to submit ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit to do the transformative work that it wants to do so that we don't abide to the patterns and the logics of this world and become complicit with the world that teaches us that we don't belong to one another. And so we're going to unpack this a little bit more. I kind of gave you a little bit of the ending at the beginning so you know where we're going, um, because this probably won't be a traditional sermon. Um, so as we go forward, um, the legendary Howard Thurman, who is one of the most important African-American theologians in our nation's history, he said in his seminal books, Jesus and the Disinherited, that the masses live with their backs constantly against the wall. They are the poor, the disinherited, the dispossessed. And then he asked, what does our religion say to them? So in situations where you are Moses' mother, where a systemic injustice is causing death, destruction, and calamity in your midst, what is the good news of the gospel? I don't think we oftentimes ask that question. And this passage, I believe, forces us to ask that question in profound ways. Um, and so to understand this passage a little bit more, I think we need to unpack a biblical concept that is prevalent all throughout the Bible. It's this concept of empire. And what is an empire? So um, let's go to the next one. There's a theologian by the name of Daniel Grudy who defines empire this way. He says, in the Bible, Egypt is the first of a, in a series of empires, including Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, that embody power structures that benefit the elite, enslave the poor, and dominate the weak. The notion of empire often describes politi political entities, but is not limited to them. And this is the kicker. Symbolically, the empire represents any power that aggregates to itself the power that belongs to God alone, or any group or institution that subjugates the poor and the needy for its own advantages. This is what Egypt is in this passage. Egypt is an empire whose prosperity and flourishing is rooted in the oppression of their neighbor. Everything Egypt has is rooted in the exploitation of Hebrew people. To emphasize this, let's go to the next slide. In verse 9, Pharaoh says to the people, look, the Israelite people are more, um, are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. This is the key verse in the entire passage, because all of the exploitation, the injustice, the killing stems from Pharaoh's fear. When insecure leaders fear the loss of their own power and prosperity more than they fear God, they bring a whole nation into their sinfulness. Empires 
abuse power and force people into submission, which we see in verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Empires, to keep the citizens complicit with the injustice that are going on, they produce uh, propaganda that actually tells them that warfare will bring them true peace. But we know that we follow the Prince of Peace, which was willing to give his life so that we can have life. The gospel says that true peace doesn't come through warfare, but it comes through sacrificial love. And we see that Pharaoh doesn't abide to that logic, and so he tells them um, to kill all the Hebrew boys. Empires, let's go to the next one, pacify their citizens by giving faithful citizens exclusive access to privileges and benefits. Empires foster division within their midst by creating a sliding scale between the haves and the have-nots. Those who have soon realize that they have a vested interest in sustaining the status quo. The privileged population thereby, whether consciously or unconsciously, becomes imperial ambassadors of what is, even in the midst of what's going on around them. And then empires are able to sustain themselves again by the propaganda, and the propaganda is used intentionally to target, demonize, and scapegoat a group in the community society for all of the society's problems. Whenever an imperial leader fears that they're losing power or influence, they convince the constituents that life would be so much better without that group. We saw this in the Nazis, uh, with the Nazis, with the Jews. We've seen this over and over again. If we just didn't have those people leeching off of our society, off of us, bringing us down, we could really be all that God created us to be. There's even religious language that we tie into this toxicity. And I think it's easy for us in the US to look at the Germans and say, how could they follow Hitler down that road? How could they ever do something so dehumanizing to another person made in the image of God? But it's harder for us to actually bring this conversation home and look at our own history and see the same ways that we've been complicit in the same type of injustice. So we're gonna kinda walk through this a little bit to make us feel this passage because I think oftentimes we can read the Bible as if it's a collection of ancient stories that has no direct relevance for our lives today. So let's look at how we've seen this play out in the US. So we know Native Americans were a group that were targeted and scapegoated and actually depicted as people who were savages in need of civilization. Uh, we legitimated our genocide of Native communities through the Doctrine of Discovery, which religiously and legally legitimated land theft, genocide, and enslavement. Um, our government um, authorized over 1,500 wars against Native American people, the most number of wars that any government has enacted against its indigenous people in the world. And we saw the population of the Native community shrink at astronomical levels because of this. But even after we tried to enact the physical genocide, when we, the remaining Native Americans were forced into a cultural genocide with Native American boarding schools, where the mantra of the Native American boarding schools was kill the Indian, save the man. And they tried to 
socialized Native people to no longer enact their culture, but to take on a Euro uh, European mindset. And in doing so, Native children were forced to cut their hair, which was dishonoring and shaming in their culture. They were forced to not speak in their Native tongue, and they were threatened that if they did, they would have their tongues cut out. And they were taught that all of these things they weren't doing for a cultural reason, but to become good Christians. We have to understand that almost all of this violence that we're going to talk about today was named, done in the name of God falsely. That's not a true authentic, but we have to understand the way in which religion has undergirded this type of injustice. Um, a group that we usually don't talk about when we talk about this time of type of racial injustice is Asian Americans. But Asian Americans have actually been scapegoated and targeted in the same way. Um, we see in the next slide, um, next one. Sorry, I didn't give you the sign. There you go. Uh, we see the power of propaganda and how propaganda influences us to participate in things that we would never do otherwise. Um, in this, these are all actual uh, images that were produced in our nation that led us to actually see Asian Americans as perpetual foreigners, people who could never truly be US citizens and trusted to be in our midst. And so in the top left, you see, uh, is that top left for you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we see uh, Asian Americans depicted as people who eat rats. Um, in the picture below, we see it says, no dogs or Chinese allowed, literally dehumanizing entire people groups. Um, and this propaganda, we should know, wasn't just aimless propaganda, but it was led to help us produce, uh, support legal exclusion. Let's go to the next slide. We know that this led to the Chinese Exclusionary Act, the one and only time that we excluded an entire people group from immigrating into our country just because of their ethnic identity. This exclusion lasted for 60 years. But then when the Chinese suddenly became our friends, the exclusion didn't stop, and the persecution didn't stop with Asian Americans. It just shifted from Chinese to the Japanese. Um, let's go to the next slide. And we see that there is this rhythmic nature to exclusion. There is this propaganda that teaches us that there is an us and a them. The them becomes the perpetual foreigner. And then the them becomes a subhuman group. So that when we mistreat the them, we don't have to actually feel bad about it because they're not truly human like you and me and our children, but they're different. And so what happens to them, we shouldn't have the same level of conviction as if it was happening to our own kids. And this, you should note, are all actual um, images that were produced by our beloved Dr. Seuss. Um, Dr. Seuss was hired to produce political propaganda to lead us to support the Japanese internment camps. Um, as a consequence, let's go to the next slide. At the time of the Japanese internment camps that they were launched, 120,000 men, women, and children were forced into internment camps. At the time this legislation was passed, there were 127,000 Japanese, people of Japanese ancestry in this nation. Only 7,000 of them were not rounded up and forced into these incarceration camps. I want you to think of the weight of that. 120,000 people unjustly forced into incarceration just because of their ethnic identity, and ultimately not one person was found guilty of any criminal offense for multiple years. 60% of the people who were forced into these incarceration camps were US citizens. 
A group that most of us are familiar about when we have these kind of conversations are African Americans, but generally we usually only talk about it from the perspective of slavery. Well, today I want to expand the conversation a little bit and let's talk about what's happened with African Americans after slavery. Um, after sl during slavery, there were no African Americans that were lynched because it would be illogical to lynch your own property because you would be killing your profit. So after slavery, quote unquote, was abolished in this nation, I say quote unquote because in the 13th Amendment it says slavery in our nation is illegal except as a punishment for a crime. So there are still thousands of slaves in our nation today, um, legally. Um, but when we talk about lynching, uh, we need to understand that from 1865, when the Emancipation Proclamation was passed, to 1952, conservative estimates say that there were at least 5,500 black people who were lynched in this nation. Conservative estimates. And that was able to transpire because of toxic rhetoric that was uh, proclaimed by politicians like this. This is a quote from the governor of Mississippi in 1907. He says, if it is necessary, every Negro in the state will be lynched and it will be done to maintain white supremacy. When you are the governor and you feel emboldened to espouse this type of toxicity, it literally opens up the floodgates for racial violence. And it looks for, at vigilante groups like the Klan and it gives them a wink and says, you can take the law into your own hands and you can do it with immunity because ultimately we're working towards the same end. Because of this, um, lynching became a normative reality in our nation and it actually became a spectacle sport. Um, there is this phenomenon that emerged called spectacle lynchings where thousands of people would gather and they would watch a black person be killed for entertainment. Um, in these uh, killings, black people would be dismembered, um, their body parts would be jarred and sold to the crowd as souvenirs. There were concession stands there and there were professional photographers who would be hired to come and capture uh, photos of the entire um, unfolding. This image is one of those pictures. Those pictures would be mass reproduced, turned into postcards, and sold to family, uh, sold to people who would then send them out to families and friends inviting them to future lynchings. Historians actually say that socially at that time spectacle lynchings functioned for communities the same way the NFL does for us today. It was the major social soiree of this time. The largest spectacle lynching on our nation's soil had 20,000 people who were present at it. But when we think about this, I think we think about this injustice sometimes as like, yes, the world is depraved. The people who don't know Jesus have done some really, really horrible things. That's why we all need our Lord and Savior. And yes, we do all need our Lord and Savior, but we also have to have a more realistic um, perspective and look at the fact that the body of Christ has been complicit in much of this that we're talking about today. Um, to the point that Reinhold Niebuhr, let's go to the next quote, the greatest theologian of the 20th century said that if there was a drunken orgy somewhere, I would bet 10 to 1 a church member was not in it. But if there was a lynching, I would bet 10 to 1 a church member was in it. Spectacle lynchings most oftentimes took place on Sunday afternoon, and they were well attended by white Christians who earlier that day went to church to give their praise and honor and adoration to Jesus Christ. 
we have to talk about this if we're going to move forward together and be the reconciled body of Christ that shows the world a different witness in the midst of the racial division that's so normal around us. Well, we move forward and we start to talk about this conversation in, in light of our Hispanic brothers and sisters. One of the things that we oftentimes forget when we talk about immigration today is that so many um, Latino brothers and sisters did not cross the border, but the border crossed them. We don't talk about that when we have these conversations. And because of that, we are unaware of how much of the US actually used to be Mexico. Um, Going forward, we also don't know about things like the Bracero program or Operation Wetback where we intentionally recruited people to cross the line when we were in need of more people to work because we were at war. But as soon as we left the war and we didn't need them anymore, we kicked them out the country. There is this push and pull factor that we've systemically been a part of, but then when we want to have the conversation today, we want to absolve ourselves of any interest to cross the border. There are these ways in which we have to be more honest and have more integrity about the conversations that we're having. And as the body of Christ, we have to understand our starting point is different from the rest of the world. Because of this reality today, we know about all the children who have been coming over as unaccompanied minors or who have been separated as families. But what we don't know, let's go to the next slide, is that 21% of these children have been forced to judicially represent themselves in court. We've had kids as young as three years old who've had to provide their own legal defense, some of which who don't even speak English. But we call this justice. So all of this gives us a glimpse of what this passage means for us today in this nation. And so as we think about this, we need to really take seriously some of the challenges of following Christ while benefiting from the imperial status quo. So let's go to the next slide. When one benefits from and finds a co its comfort within the confines of empire, it becomes extremely difficult to divest oneself from its trappings. When the empire is understood as the source of safety, security, and abundant life, it slowly but surely becomes an idol, whether we're conscious of it or not. And biblically, idolatry is anything that we give ourselves to other than God. Therefore, we give our, when we give our allegiance to worldly empires, we fight to sustain this oppressive status quo that enables their financial prosperity because our hopes and our dreams are tied to it. What I find really telling about this passage is we see all of this injustice that Pharaoh is enacting, and we see the law literally upholding the dehumanization of certain people. But we don't see not one person who is a follower of Christ who actually stands up and speaks out and says that I'm not okay with these laws. I'm not gonna go along with an entire people group being enslaved just so I can actually have a more comfortable life. There's not one person who follows Jesus who steps up and shows up and speaks up for their neighbor who's being oppressed. Even when it gets to the point that the law says that they must enact an infanticide and all these innocent babies must be put to death, there's not one person who morally raises up and says that this is not what we're supposed to be. I refuse to be complicit in what's going on. Because it's extremely hard to speak out when what the status quo is, regardless of how unjust it is, is working for you. When it's benefiting you, when it's making your children's lives easier, 
and safer and more convenient, it's hard to have the boldness to speak up and sh uh, show up for your neighbor who's being persecuted. Given that, I do want to spotlight the fact that there is not one male in this whole story who does what's right. Every single person who is able to discern the will of the spirit and to show up and speak out against what's happening is a female. Let's go to the next page. Uh, we have Moses' mom and his sister who engage in civil disobedience. They refused to follow the unjust law that Pharaoh has passed. The empire's oppression didn't cause them to lose their faith in God. They knew that the spirit was compelling them to resist and in spite of being afraid to break an unjust law, they were willing to cross the line because they knew that the law was not God-honoring. The midwives direct a di dire defy a direct order from Pharaoh, and I want you to think about how much they're putting at risk. Pharaoh is the most powerful person in the land. The midwives are Hebrew midwives who literally have no standing in society. And they are willing to stand up and resist a direct order. Do you know that they had to do this with fear and trembling? They know the power Pharaoh has. But in spite of that, they knew that God had more power. And they chose to follow what God was compelling them to do because they ultimately feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And then the most interesting person in the passage for me is Pharaoh's daughter who disobeys her father, and in doing so, puts her reputation, his reputation, and her generational inheritance on the line. I want you to think about this. If word gets out that Pharaoh's own daughter won't even listen to him, Pharaoh loses all of his power within society. Pharaoh's daughter becomes a model for us for what it looks like to, to be part of the privileged population, but to still discern the will of God and have the boldness to live into the will of God. Pharaoh's daughter really embodies what we read about in Romans 12 too, where it says that we cannot be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may discern what the will of God is, the, the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Pharaoh's daughter while systemic injustice, uh, when we talk about Pharaoh's daughter, let's look at the multiple ways she's used. While systemic justice strips Moses from uh, his mother, God not only makes a way through Pharaoh's daughter for them to be reunified, but ultimately uh, makes it so that the empire that caused them to be separated has to pay Moses' mom to take care of him. When you think about Moses' mother's faith, you have to understand the despair that she felt for three months trying to hide her baby as a fugitive and ultimately saying, there literally is nothing else that I can do. All I can do is entrust him to God. She makes a makeshift basket, puts him in the now, and has to believe that the spirit of God is going to protect him. That is the epitome of hopelessness. When you realize there's literally nothing else you can do but place your hope in the one who promises to be our savior. And she entrusts Moses to the spirit and puts him in the basket. And Moses, guided by the spirit, goes to the very worst place that you and I would think that he could go to. 
to the actual home in which the decree comes from that he must be put to death. And he's found by probably the second worst person he could be found by in Pharaoh's daughter, who had literally been indoctrinated with bigotry from being yay high. Can you imagine the conversation she had over dinner with her father, who literally makes a law that all Hebrew boys must be put to death? You know that she had been indoctrinated deeply with a disdain and a view of Hebrews as people whose lives did not matter, literally. That's why this passage is so powerful, because it tells us that God has the power to break generational cycles of bigotry. The gospel has the power to transform our understanding of who we are connected to, who we belong to, and who we see value in. When we think about this, this passage really illustrates the power of proximity. Because it's not until Pharaoh's daughter wades into the water and gets close to Moses that she begins to see through all the lies that she had been taught by her father and by her culture. When she gets close to Moses and looks into his eyes, she doesn't see a disposable person like her father taught her, but she sees somebody else who's made in the image of God. She realizes the kingdom truth that in the kingdom of God, there are no disposable people. She not only saves Moses' life, but she ultimately brings him into Pharaoh's house and raises him as her own son. Think about everything she puts on the line to do this. She doesn't even know Moses. And the first thing she says when she sees and encounters Moses is, this must be one of those Hebrew boys, which means she knew what she was supposed to do when she found Moses but the spirit of God troubles her heart and actually transforms her vision. So she sees that this is not somebody that she's supposed to participate in, even though her father is the most powerful man who's commissioned her to do this, she's willing to resist the socialization to live into the truth of the gospel. So I wanna watch this video real quick that kinda puts all this together in a more powerful way than I can. It's a spoken word video by a friend of mine by name of Micah Barnet. And it really talks about the power of proximity and how proximity is so urgent for us to understand the gospel in deeper ways. A lot of people see justice Stop fighting for your own. And if there is one lie that we have bought into as the Western church is that we are not each other's own. If we saw each other as each other's own, all of the injustices that we just went through would have been impossible. If the body of Christ would have stepped up and spoke up and shown up for their neighbor because their neighbor was their own, the empire cannot function in the way the scripture lays out for us in this passage. It is only when we allow sin to make us believe that we are not connected to each other that this type of injustice transpires in our midst. I had a seminary professor who said it to me this way. He said, everything in this world teaches us that blood is thicker than water. 
He says, that is except the scriptures. The scriptures actually teach us that the baptismal waters are thicker than our ancestral bloodlines, and it is baptism that must redefine who family is for us today. If we were ever to truly see ourselves as a baptismal family and step up and show up and speak up for one another the way that we do for our biological family, could you imagine how radically different this world would be? But this isn't just something that my seminary professor made up. We see this played out actually with Jesus with some of his last words before he's crucified on the cross. Let's go to the next passage. In John 19, 25 through 27, it says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, what's so profound about this passage is Jesus' mother's sister is literally standing right there. He doesn't say, go with your biological family, take her in, and take care of her. He says to a disciple who is racially and ethnically different than her, this is your mother, you belong to her, because earlier in the text we see Jesus says, who is my family? My family are those who enact the will of God in the world. He says, this is your mother, I'm gonna trust my biological mother to somebody who I'm not even biologically connected to, and I'm gonna trust that you're gonna care for her like your own family. The gospel is constantly trying to transform our understanding of who we belong to and when we understand that we belong to our neighbors who are different than us, our witness in the world is profoundly transformed. And we know that we no longer have the choice to be silent in the face of systems and structures that benefit us and enslave and oppress and dehumanize our neighbor. But to live into the gospel in such a way, you have to believe that all of the sacrifices that you're gonna make to step up, show up, and speak up are worth it. Because you will be persecuted. You will have people who don't make, understand why you're speaking up. That's not your child who's actually being infected by mass incarceration. Immigration's not impacting your community. That's not your children, but the gospel truth is that those are your children because we all belong to one another. So, as I close, let's turn to John 3.16 uh, through 18 and just listen to what the gospel tells us. It says, this is how we know what love is, because Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and truth. And as we live into this commission to love with action and truth, we have to understand the implications of what this passage in Exodus means for us today. In the midst of a society that has created unjust systems and structures and privileges some at the expense of others, we no longer have the choice to be silent in the face of what we know is happening. We are called to, people, to be people who leverage our privilege and our access for the good of our neighbor and the furtherance of the kingdom. When we are silent, we become complicit. 
And I pray that God gives us the faith of the midwives who are willing to speak up and show up even when it could cost them their very lives. And at the end of the day, at the heart of the gospel, I believe the question that God is asking us over and over and over again is, is the gospel good news even when it costs you something? Is the gospel good news even when it could cost you your very life? The Spirit of God echoes over and over again a profound yes, that the gospel is good news even when it cost us something. Our Savior gave us his very life so that we can go out into the world and radically proclaim the kingdom truths that we belong to one another and that we are one interconnected body where when one part of the body hurts, we are all hurting. We don't have the option of turning a blind eye to suffering because we're followers of Jesus who showed us a profound model of sacrificial love. And so as we close, I pray for us, for us to go out into the world and bear witness to that sacrificial love, even when it's costly. So God, I'd just like to thank you for this opportunity to be with my brothers and sisters, to really discern how it is that your spirit is moving us forward together. I know it's uncomfortable to look backwards, to talk about the hard things that exist, but it is only through that truth of what has been that we can pursue the truth of who you are calling us to be. And we can move forward as a reconciled body of Christ, living into the Revelation 7-9 vision of what we know heaven will be, where all tribes and tongues and languages are standing around the throne giving praise and honor and adoration to you. And we know that you taught us to pray that thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So help us to pursue that Revelation 7-9 witness here on earth right now in our presence, even when it costs us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.